Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the last week of Acts. I know, it's like we just started. Time flies when you have fun. So I've gotten some good feedback over the last few, I guess week, maybe two weeks-ish, about what people want to do next year. And the one thing that's gotten the most votes is Revelation. And so I think that's, oh, listen to you. I know. You know, you sound like me. Um, any of you go to the top angel chef cook-off thing that the Women of St. Michael hosted in Trinity Groves? I was one of the cooking teams, and I came in second place two years ago when we did the first one, so I was really hoping to kill it this time. And so when they got up front and they said, we're only going to announce the top three. Okay. They announced top, you know, third place was my team, and I booed really loudly. <laughs> and... <laughs> And the judge said, are you booing your team? Uh, yeah, because I wanted to win. So, yes, you sound like me. Um, so, Revelation's gotten the most, but here's the deal about Revelation. We could do it out of context, but it means a lot more if you understand where it's coming from. And so, what I think we'd need to do to do it properly is to actually do Genesis and then Revelation, because that's, it's the beginning and the end, it's the creation and the new creation, it's that sort of stuff. And so what I'm leaning toward right now is actually doing, for the next two years, to do Genesis first and then Revelation next year three and four. Because it's, as much as I like theology, and I do, in a forum like this, I find it would be very challenging to make just theology engaging enough. It's difficult. That's, that's a serious like peanuts teacher moment. I feel like you guys would sit there and kind of hear wah, 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 you know, if we were really just, so something like a story, you know, Genesis and Revelation are stories, kind of like Luke and Acts are stories. It's a little bit more engaging. I think the theology would be great if we could figure out how to break this out into discussion groups then I think theology could actually, you know, get roots. Right. So, my, I mean, not like you guys don't have opinions, do you? So, so I'm leaning toward Genesis and Revelation year three and four. So just kind of keep that in mind, and I'll confirm all that this summer. No. Um, so the question is, is that conflict revelation? No, we're doing five sermons on revelation. So it's super high level. And what we would do is step through it with a lot more intentionality because revelation is, it's dynamic in many ways. You can take it in many different directions. Genesis is a much, much uh, more like a straight story. It walks through, and so Genesis, the scope of Genesis is you get from creation, Adam and Eve, to Joseph, right? And so the very end of Genesis is Joseph bringing his whole family into Egypt, and then the start of Exodus is a pharaoh rose in Egypt who did not know Joseph, and there's 400-year gap, and all of a sudden they're slaves, right? So Genesis explains how the Hebrew people became slaves in Egypt. That's the whole story, but it's epic, Right, you get things like creation and the flood and you get the tower and all kinds of good stuff. Plus you get so much good drama, it's like the best reality show. So Genesis is great. Hello, come on in. Genesis is great because it helps us understand where all the different people come from, right? We get people like Hebrews, but we don't have people like where somebody help. There you go. Move over. Um, so you get to know where all the different people come from. And that's really important for us as we go off into the future. And so I think it would be to do bookends, Genesis and Revelation, years three and four. So won't be a conflict. Okay, so let's jump in with the fi finale of Acts. We'll start with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray, God, we ask your presence upon us. Fill us up with your spirit that as we continue to discover your story, 
that it will become part of our story and that we will leave this place today inspired to do the work you've given us to do and all in your son Jesus' name. Today we ask that you bless those we hold in our hearts and minds. Give your healing touch upon those who need it most and help heal those people and that which is broken in our world. May we be the source of healing as we are able and that through your word, we can continue to be transformed to be your hands and feet. All this we ask in your holy name, amen. Amen. All right, so chapter 28, we are here and we have made it. Chapter 28 comes in three parts. The first is, I'm gonna call the snake. And that's gonna be Paul's time on Malta. Then we're going to have Paul's arrival in Rome, and then Paul's sermon in Rome. So the beginning of this chapter, we are in Malta. The end of chapter 27 is the shipwreck. And so we had all the drama of the sea and them being lost and tossed and turned, and they crash onto the reef and they float or swim, depending on if they could, all the way into this island. And so Malta, just to give you some geography, Malta is basically south of Italy. So they've come a decent way across the Mediterranean. They were lost at sea between Greece and Malta. Malta is this odd little place that I didn't really know much about until a couple years ago. It is pretty equidistant between North Africa and Italy. And so it has been many times throughout history a very strategically helpful outpost because it was not so easy to fly or sail from Europe to North Africa. You kind of needed a midpoint. And Malta became the point where if you were coming, trying to move your military from North Africa into Europe, Malta was a staging ground. If you were coming from Europe down into North Africa, Malta was a staging ground. And so it was very critically important and it has changed hands many, many times over the years. You are likely familiar with Malta because of the Knights of Malta. So Malta became Christian, and once it became Christian, they became very uh, helpful, so to speak, as the Crusades tried to secure the Holy Land. And so as the Crusaders would go into the Holy Land and try and find the Holy Grail and all those different things, the Knights of Malta sort of minted themselves as the protectors of the sacred stuff. And so Malta became this very Christian island country, and it has beautiful churches. Malta is the most densely populated country in the world because its island is small. And so it's not necessarily that it's got a gigantic population, but it's basically completely developed. There really isn't much in the way of undeveloped land, except for some little parks here and there, but you don't have just open space there. It's pretty much totally packed. And it's one of the only nations that was never really bombed in any of the 20th century wars. And so if you go there today, you see some really well-preserved stuff. Um, Two years ago when I led the Paul pilgrimage cruise, we stopped in Malta. And it was one of those places where, sure, Paul shipwrecks in Malta, but really what's there? And it surprised me as being just this remarkable place. You can still go to what they call the grotto where Paul goes after being shipwrecked. So if you imagine the island, there's a reef, they go across the bay, and they land on the beach. When they land on the beach, the people who live in Malta receive them and kind of help them out a little bit. We find that they start a fire, they give them some food, they take care of Paul and all the other people on the ship. Now remember, we think Paul is really special, but Paul is a prisoner on this ship. It's Paul's centurion who convinces the other Roman military people to not kill the prisoners on the ship. Remember that at the end of chapter 27? So they get all these people to shore 
and yet they still have prisoners. And so they, in essence, keep them contained on this island, in this little grotto space. And that's really where our story begins. So let's take a look at verse 3. Chapter 28, verse 3. Paul had gathered a bundle of brushwood and was putting it on the fire when a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man must be a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, took off, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were expecting him to swell up or drop dead, but after they had waited a long time and saw that nothing unusual had happened to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. So a lot happens in just a few verses. They've brought these people in. The natives on the island have helped start a fire to get them settled. And Paul is just being helpful, gathers up a little brushwood and wants to put it on the fire. But a snake who's getting too hot jumps out, bites Paul on the hand. What's interesting about the way that the people perceive this is they note two very important negative things, the sea and the snake. If you think about ancient times, even today, what was most representative of evil or of the powers of evil would have been the sea. It was always a dangerous place. And in most mythology, there was always this sense about the god of the sea being vengeful and wanting to take out that vengeance or enact justice on people who have done wrong. But even perhaps more than the sea is the snake, right? I mean, the snake is not just something that can hurt Paul. The snake represents like everything that is evil, right? We, I don't know if there's much that probably causes a visceral reaction in human beings than snakes, right? Even if you know that a particular snake is harmless, snakes just kind of give you the creeps. Well, that's because we have that kind of inert reaction to what we know is dangerous. Snakes have always been dangerous, yes, physically, but certainly in stories, snakes represent evil. And so in this moment, the people who watch Paul get bitten put two and two together. Like he may have escaped the sea and been shipwrecked, lucky him, but justice, this idea of divine retribution has gotten him anyway. So even though he didn't die in the storm that was probably supposed to kill him, he has come onto the shore and been bitten by a snake that will certainly kill him. So he's obviously a bad guy. That's important for us to understand because when Paul doesn't die, the only logical place that people could land is that Paul is a god. Now that sounds ridiculous. I mean, most of us, at least I, I assume most of us, maybe all of, I'll go so far as say all of us. If that kind of thing happened, we would not go to that person as a god. We might go to that person's lucky, or maybe that person's got something interesting and their epidemiology should be studied because something obviously is happening there. But we wouldn't jump to Paul as a god. But because they have this mythical understanding of retribution and justice in the world and things happening for a reason, storms don't just happen because of meteorological circumstances. Storms happen in order to enact justice. So naturally, so does the snake. But Paul shakes the snake off, and Paul does not die. So they immediately begin to see Paul as something really, really special, even a god. That's important because Paul then goes into the island and begins to show them just how special he really is. So after the events of the shipwreck, the sea and the snake, they take Paul to see Publius, who is the man who is in charge of the island. Now, Publius, even though we don't hear this explicitly, that is as Roman a name as you can get. And so it's very obvious that Rome is present on Malta. And so they take him to the Roman, effectively Roman governor of that island, Publius, and he begins to do some miracle work. So look at verse 7. 
Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It so happened that the father of Publius lay sick in bed with fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and cured him by praying and putting his hands on him. After this happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. So Publius, the leader of the Romans on this island, has a sick father. Paul goes, lays hands, the father is healed. Everyone gets excited. They bring all their sick people to Paul and they are all healed. This is a remarkable experience. A few things are happening in this story. First off, we see that Paul has another opportunity to speak in front of a Roman official. And in being in front of a Roman official, he proves his worth. So we have in this scene something that harkens back to what was done in both Jerusalem and Caesarea. Paul convinces the authority that he's not a bad guy, that he's not owed being arrested or imprisoned or especially execution, that he really is just doing good, but he's doing good in a way that people in leadership over here don't like. And so Publius kind of sees that Paul is good. So do the other people on the island. And what we get is the implication that Malta as a, an island, as a nation, is really converted because of Paul's presence and his works, his good works on that island. Let me see. One interesting thing to note that I learned a couple years ago about Malta is that they claim no snakes on their island. Isn't that interesting? They have as their own island lore that it's this experience with Paul having been bitten and not died and his curing all of the ill on the island that now you will not find any snakes on Malta. I have no idea, but I just thought that was an interesting nugget. All right, any questions about Malta because we're going to set sail for Rome next. So the question is, what, uh, if Paul's laying hands on people and curing them, what's that about? So there is obviously a tradition of healing that Jesus takes up the mantle, right? So when Jesus begins healing people, it's not as if others have not been healed, but Jesus seems to do it in a more convincing way, maybe more often than most. We see that in Acts where Philip goes down into Samaria and Philip sees a healer preaching about whatever God or divinity that they claim. And Philip walks up and says, whatever you're doing is just magic. Let me tell you the truth the God who can actually heal. And then people are turned, remember that magician even says, oh my goodness, you have real magic. So there is this sense that God, God's presence can heal. So we have Peter doing that multiple times, Paul doing that multiple times, even bringing people back from the dead, people touching them, so they're not even intentionally healing, but people are being healed by touching them or their clothes. So. That you cannot deny that that is an idea within the first century. So then what? We certainly have Christians who have inherited the idea of charismatic or spastic healing, um, where if the spirit is in you enough, you can actually physically heal someone. It's difficult this is, this is, it's difficult for Episcopalians um, and for, I would say, most mainline Christian groups because we don't deny that it's possible. And certainly we act this out, right? I mean, as Episcopalians, we do things like we have healing services and we anoint people with oil and we do anointing at the time of death and all of those things. I don't think that most today would expect that those moments 
are as much physical as they are spiritual. And that's about as, uh, as detailed as I can really get. Um, if someone is physically healed in a miraculous way, I can certainly be comfortable crediting God for that. However, I think that what happens most of the time is that we filled with the goodness of God actually are able to do work in the world that help heal people. So I don't think that God necessarily, you know, most people aren't just healed, but they're healed because a godly person did something for them. And so I think what I take from that is not that if you just pray hard enough, someone will be healed. Mm, maybe. We've talked about prayer in here a number of times. I take more that if we use our giftedness as well as possible, we can actually discover ways to be healers and be those kinds of healers in the world. Not just physically, although that's possible, right? When someone discovers cures for diseases or cancer or all that sort of stuff. So I, this just popped in my head. Um, I'm not entirely sure if any of you are you know, pro or anti-vaccine or not. I certainly am not. I am way pro-vaccine. Um, it worries me that people don't do that with their children, but did you see SNL two weeks ago? Um, Saturday Night Live is one of my favorite things. And there was a, a skit on The View where they had Jenny McCarthy around the table or, you know, who, someone playing Jenny McCarthy, who is like the big anti-vaccine person out there promoting to not have your children vaccinated. And she says, you know, Whoopi, the person playing Whoopi Goldberg, who I love, um, is saying, tell me more about this anti-vaccine stuff. And she says, well, it's this and that, and we're gonna actually show everyone how proud we are, and we're gonna gather everyone in the city who doesn't vaccinate their kids, and we're gonna go marching down the street. And you see the actress playing Whoopi kind of go, hmm. <laughs> and you know, the implication is, so maybe we can kind of get rid of all of you at once, right? <laughs> um, and you know, they say things like, you know, what, what's the point of a polio vaccine? Who do you know who has polio? And they're all like, right because they've been vaccinated anyway so i see things like that and anything else that comes out in the world right if it's a new cancer drug if it's a new treatment for something replacing someone's heart and giving them a new one i mean these things are miraculous but it's not passive miracle there are people who have used their gifts to do these amazing things. There's physical, then you've got spiritual. I haven't talked about this much on Sundays yet, but I've been fascinated with the idea that being a person of faith keeps you healthier. And those, the data is just ridiculously convincing that in, in pretty much everything anyone studied, People who are involved in faith communities are healthier in like every single way. Not only do they live longer, but they live longer after having been diagnosed with like anything. And one statistic I thought was crazy, if you have a heart attack, you are four times more, did I say this to you the other day? If you have a heart attack, you are four times more likely to be alive six months later if you are involved in a church. Four times. So what does that mean? Does that mean, I don't know, you can point to some scientific things. Like I actually, I haven't looked this up. And I don't know if it's ever been studied. I bet that being exposed to large groups of people actually gives you a stronger immune system. There's that. I bet doing things like receiving communion and using a common cup does exactly the same thing so that ultimately you are a physically stronger person. It's like kids who go out and play in the dirt are much stronger in their, immun in their immunity than kids who don't. Um, all of that is to say that there is a physical reality to being healed as much as there is a spiritual reality of being healthy. If you have no hope, why recover? from something that is traumatic. 
people who have a purpose to live are going to survive at a higher rate than people who don't. That's the end. And I think there's no greater purpose to live than being called by God to do good work in the world. And so when it comes to healing, we have these stories and I can't interpret my way out of this person had a fever and dysentery and Paul laid hands and then they didn't. That's what the story says. I have never seen that. I think that the church has mm, taken advantage of people's hopes to be healed. But have you all, have any of you ever been to a Roman Catholic healing spot in the world? The one that I've been to is Lourdes in France. And Lourdes' story is that the Virgin Mary appeared to a little girl in a grotto and said, drink this water and it will heal you. And people began to come and be bathed and drink the water from this natural spring. And when I walked up, it's, it's a huge space. It's a mountain, basically. And as you approach the mountain, there's a huge, I don't know, garden or atrium or whatever you would call it. And piles and piles of wheelchairs and crutches. People who have come in with crutches or wheelchairs been bathed and have walked out. I don't know. Um, great. I, I hope that that happens. But in my experience, I interpret these stories more so as either using our gifts for good or that our spirit is in need of healing most. And when our spirit is healed, there is a physical effect. But the physical effect is never as important as the spiritual healing that we go through. That was a lot of words to tell you, I don't know. <laughs> I can say I don't know so well. All right, any other thoughts or questions? Yeah. Well, so it's sort of what you're saying is what we talked about with prayer, which is it's really for us. You know, prayer is more for us than for God. I think that we get we get that backwards when we treat God like a vending machine, right? If we pray the exact right way, then we get the candy bar or the soda that we are looking for, like the right one. Instead, we are changed when we pray. We are actually moved closer and closer to God's truth because we are committed to that kind of spiritual habit. And that's what I think prayer is best for. Can prayer be answered in some cosmic way? Sure. But I would, I would always encourage people to pray for their own good, not because somehow they're going to say the words in the right magic way and God will then decide to answer that prayer. I think it's more so our own confidence and courage and faithfulness that gives us the kind of physical effect that statistics show we get. Faithful people just get a more positive health impact in a physical way. And I don't think that that's an accident, but I also don't think that's a vending machine kind of result. I think we are given purpose and that purpose sustains us. Okay. Yep. All right, any other questions or questions? Okay, let's go to Rome. So Paul's done all these great things in Malta. The people in Malta really like him, and so they give him lots of stuff. They give the people honors, they give them lots of supplies, and they sail on an Egyptian ship that had been docked in Malta for the winter up to Rome. So this is a mostly directly north kind of traveling from Malta into a city called Patchouli that is south of Rome. They actually go through a couple cities before they land in Patchouli. Um, Ostia is the main port city of Rome, but 
the only reason why I would think that they would land in Patuli is because maybe Ostia is really busy. This is kind of the alternative that is just less busy. But it's a hundred or so miles south of Rome. So people would dock here and then they would travel the rest of the journey on foot across land. So let's look at verse three and we'll see the story in, in the chapter. Three months later, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, an Alexandrian ship with the twin brothers as its figurehead. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there for three days. Then we weighed anchor and came to Regium. After one day, there was a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petuli. So they've traveled from Malta into th two different docks before they finally reached the third dock of Petuli. There we found believers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. The believers from there when they heard of us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So let's unpack this real fast. They sail from Malta, they get all the stuff they need, they land in Petuli, and they discover believers. And for no explainable reason, Paul gets to stay with those believers for a week before they actually make the journey to Rome. Now we know that there were Christians in Italy because Paul wrote the letter to the Romans a couple years before this happened. So before he arrives in Rome, he's, always, he's already written to the Christian community there. So it's not a surprise that there are Christians in the city, but this is a little farther outside the city. And so what Luke is really saying is the Christian message has begun to travel and they know about Paul. So when Paul shows up, he gets to stay with them, he gets their hospitality, and then as what happens with dignitaries, the Christians in Rome find out Paul is there, they actually come out of Rome and meet him on the way, and then usher him into the city. So in a, in a way, you get this kind of honorific of a it's not a parade, but they kind of parade him into the city like they would whenever anyone special shows up. And so those believers take him into Rome with at least a little bit of fanfare. And when they arrive in Rome, Paul's able to rent accommodations for himself. So verse 16 says, when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. This is like, I've said in the past, Roman arrest is not really a prison cell with bars. It's much more of a dignified way of being on house arrest. Paul will say later that he is still wearing chains, but he can stay in his own house at his own expense and have a decent quality of life without having to uh, he can't leave, but people can come to him. He can entertain them. He can write letters and correspond, and he will do that for a couple years while he is in Rome. So when he arrives in Rome, he calls the Jewish leaders together in order to talk to them. Now, Rome is the site of a lot of a very large Jewish population. There were dozens of synagogues in Rome, and we know that the Jews at that time were present within the Roman uh, civil society. And so he brings these Jewish leaders together because he wants to tell them a very important thing. He's not done anything wrong. Paul wants to make sure they know that his accusation is really a false accusation. So let's look at the way that Luke tells this story starting in verse 17. Three days later, after Paul gets to Rome, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had assembled, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing wrong against our people or the customs of our ancestors, yet I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. When they examined me, the Romans wanted to release me because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to the emperor, even though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is for the sake of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken anything evil about you. So I think that it's interesting to note two things in this passage. First, these Jews seem very ill-informed. If Paul has 
caused riots in other Jewish communities, and it has been years since that happened, and he's been held in captivity, and in the switch from Felix to Festus, for two years, the Jews in Jerusalem still want Paul. How in the world do the Roman Jews not know about this? I mean, that is a, that is a thing that people would have taken with them. And it's not like Rome did not have trade. The Jews were very involved in the trade at that time. And so Jews would have been going back and forth and sailing to and from Rome, and this story never made it to them. So they're ill-informed, or perhaps a second thing. Maybe they're just not concerned. Maybe what we're seeing here is that Jews outside of kind of the bubble of Israel were just kind of not worried about it. It's sort of like when you go to a particular region anywhere in the world, there are certain things that just captivate their sensibility, where they just believe everybody knows about this stuff, when a lot of people don't know if you're not within that bubble. I, one example of this, um, I just thought this is really not a great example, but I went to see Hamilton in London last year, and what cracked me up is, first off, Hamilton's well-known, right? I mean, most people have heard of that play. Um, and Hamilton himself, in our context, is a big deal, right? So we sit down in the theater, and there, were, uh, there was a, a British couple in front of us, and the woman was talking to her husband and said, so wh what's this play about? This is some American fellow, right? I mean, he did something. Right? What did he do? And he said, well, I don't know what he did. I was just told this is a good play. And I thought, I'm pretty sure they didn't sound cockney or whatever. Like, I think I just sounded like Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. Um, but it, it was one of those moments where I think, of course everyone knows who Hamilton is, right? Well, no, the British don't care. So it's that, I think there's that kind of, contextual differences going on, right? Who cares what's going on in Israel? Like the Jews in Rome have their own life, their own world, their own concerns, and whatever the Jews in Jerusalem are worried about really don't worry the Jews in Rome. That's a very interesting note that Luke makes here. It's the first time really in the entire book of Acts, or at least the story of Paul, where Luke seems like he wants to make the point that not all the Jews are so concerned about Paul. Mostly the story of Paul has been he goes to a city and they kind of know about him. And maybe they give him the benefit of the doubt, maybe they listen to him for a minute, but then most of the time a riot erupts and he's run out of the city. It's just not happening that way in Rome. And the Jewish population there was so large that I think it's easy for us to interpret this as they just had too much to do. Paul was not that big a deal. Paul was not that big a deal for good and bad. It's good for Paul because I think his desire to talk to the Roman leadership was likely to prevent any riots, right? He gathers them together and the first thing he wants to say to them is, I am not a bad guy and I do not deserve what they did to me. Please don't, what? riot or get mad at me, but it's not really about him. He knows he's protected. It would be about the other Jesus followers. I think what he's really going on in his mind is if they get mad at me, they can't get to me. So they're going to get to the adjacent people to me, which would be the Christians. And he doesn't want his presence in Rome to hurt his Christian brothers and sisters there as well. But they don't know about him. They don't care. And that's an interesting note in itself because it does show that Paul is still coming to a place that needs to hear about the gospel message. What I think is interesting is what comes next with the preaching. And it's important for us to note that Paul still has some preaching to do. And so before we get to the preaching, any questions about that section being received by the Jewish leaders? Then let's get to the last section. Paul preaches in Rome. So as I noted, people still need to hear about the gospel message. 
So you don't need to turn to it. But back in the very first chapter of Acts, we hear Jesus say, It's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I think what's really happening here is that Luke is finishing the arc of his story that began with Jesus. That was just seven verses into the book of Acts. Now we are nearly seven verses from the end of Acts, And what Luke has done is taken Jesus' words, you will go to the ends of the earth, and basically brought Paul to effectively the ends of the earth. Rome, although very powerful, was one of the outer edges of the empire. If you think about the entire Mediterranean, Rome is in the far west of the empire. At this time, the empire went north of Italy a little, but not much. Certainly there was nothing in Central and Northern Europe, nothing in the UK. Rome kind of ended in Northern Italy, or their empire ended. But if you go east, the empire was expansive all the way over into Asia Minor and all the way down into North Africa. So the ends of the earth at that point would have been the empire. Rome was kind of as far as you could get in the physical geography of the Roman Empire. So Paul arrives at the ends of the earth, and he takes the opportunity to preach. So Paul spent time, and we see, from morning until evening, explaining to these Jewish leaders all about the gospel of Jesus. So once he had made these explanations, we see, turn to verse 25, what the effect of his preaching is. So they, the Jewish leaders, disagreed with each other. And as they were leaving, Paul made one further statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed listen, but never understand. And you will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes so that they might not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Paul's final statement to the Jews, we'll pause real fast, is that it was already predetermined, prophesied, that you would hear this message but not listen. And he says in verse 28, Let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. I said at the beginning of this study, Acts is very much kind of a part one and part two. Part one is focused on Peter and Jerusalem and the Jews. Part two is focused on Paul and Rome and the Gentiles. The big arc that happens with that verse is that this message that was always for everyone, although beginning with the Jewish people who follow Jesus, has now made a full journey away. And Paul says, or Luke says, that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles because they will listen. The close of Acts is really a shift toward the Gentiles. We have been bringing the Jewish people with us with intentionality, but now the scales have tipped. Most of the Christ followers at this point were not first Jewish. They were Gentiles. And as Paul arrives in Rome to the ends of the earth, preaching this gospel, he ties it up by saying, you now cannot hear this. God has sent this to the Gentiles. And so the implication being that the baton is taken up as a shift fully into the Gentiles. Rather than going and trying to recruit the Jewish people, they've really kind of, they've really made a point to say, we're sort of done with that. And now we're going beyond the Jewish community to invite everyone else into this way of Jesus. I think it's also very important for us to note that the challenge Paul puts to the Jews is one he could very easily put to us. 
In essence, when he says, hearts have grown dull, ears are hard of hearing, eyes are shut, what he's really saying is, you like your stuff the way you have it. But God does not simply stay in one place. And it's very important for us who like our stuff the way we like it to not be closed to the working of the Spirit. That's perhaps the very end message of Paul. So look at verse 30. These are the final two verses of Acts. Paul lived in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Wait, that's it? If you read Acts, it's hard not to kind of read that, those last verses and say, wait a minute, what happened? I mean, Paul just lived there and he preached. Wait, all of this happens and we don't get to hear the end of Paul's story. I think it's very, I hope, from, from just a general human perspective, we would read the end of this and say, that's not entirely satisfying. What happened? There's like an open end here. Luke had Paul tell his story in long form three times. So it's not as if Luke ran out of time or space. Luke made choices in the past in this book that he could have easily edited out to give us something about Paul. So I think we should ask the question, why does Luke not tell us what happens? Now we have Christian tradition that tells us what happens, but Luke, who started this story at the very beginning with Jesus' birth, has now come all the way to Paul and leaves out what happens to him. Why? First, I would say there are two, two plausible answers. I like the second, but let's talk about the first one. The first one is perhaps we certainly know Luke knows what happens. Paul lived for two years. Luke has not written this down by the time Paul is in Rome. So Luke lives long enough to write the gospel and Acts, so he certainly knows what happens. So it's not for lack of knowledge. So Paul, we know, ultimately dies at the hand of the emperor. Luke's story in Acts has been about vindication. Paul has been accused or threatened, and time and time again, the truth of the gospel gets him out. Except that doesn't happen this time. He is executed, and tradition says he's beheaded because that's the way that Romans were executed because it was nice and quick and easy. Paul doesn't make it out alive this time. Now, of course, they don't think Paul's going to live forever, but perhaps there was this sense that the gospel vindicates any false accusation, but it didn't this time. And so rather than Luke telling us that, Luke ends the story in a way that is more hopeful and more positive, making the shipwreck and the conversion on Malta the, the climax of that story arc. That's possible. I actually think it's because of a second reason. I think that Luke's story has never been about Paul. Luke's story has never been about Peter. Luke's story has always been about gospel. And so when we get to Rome, Luke wants to make it very clear that this is not a story about Paul. Our desire to want to know what happens to Paul misses the point. Because really Luke's story has always been about spreading the gospel message. Peter first, hand the baton to Paul, and now we receive it. The actual end of this story is the beginning of our story. Peter, Paul, they are both evangelists. We are called to do the same thing. This should not be a story for us of just what some good people did back in history. But this story has not ended. And so Luke leaves it open-ended because that story becomes our story. And that's what I hope we will take 
from the whole study of Luke and Acts over the last two years is that it's not a story that is fixed in time, but it's one that is dynamic, one that we inherit. And I hope that we don't have a dullness about us, that we can really hear what the Spirit is doing, that we won't just hold on to the stuff we like, but that we'll actually be open to the way that God works in the world, that the Spirit can move through us, that we have received the baton from Paul, that we've received the baton from all of these other evangelists who have come before us, friends we even know alive today. So then what are we gonna do with it? Because I think that's the hope that the gospel has. It's not about any one of us, but it's a story that is much bigger. It's a story that will continue beyond us, and it's a story that we know, in the end, God wins. And so no matter what kind of hardship we go through in this life, no matter what struggles or valleys we experience, no diagnosis, nothing, can keep us from the truth that we're part of a story, and we are with God, and in the end, we know God wins. There you go. How about, should we end with that? Amen, okay. All right, one last thing. One last thing. Now that we have done Acts all the way through, here is my ask. Go home and at some point in the next few months, maybe this can be a little summer moment, sit down and read the whole thing front to back, the entire book of Acts. It won't take you that long. You spent a year going through verse by verse by verse. Now sit down and read from verse one to the end all at once, make time for yourself to do this, because I think you will now receive and hear this story in a very different way because you've gotten such good depth with each chapter. And so do that at some point this summer, and I will be in touch to let you know when we will begin next fall. Make sure you tell a friend, bring a friend. We will do this again, and we're probably gonna be doing Genesis. And so you'll find out how we can get the books and what we will read as a companion along to our study. So thank you all for a great year. Happy Easter, everybody.